Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. It's an author by the name of Erwin McManus, who in his book, Chasing Daylight, tells a story. Uh, one time he was uh, doing a conference in, uh, on the Gulf Coast, and he was taking a walk with his boy down at the beach one night. And as they're going... Uh, toward the beach, um, he looks out to his right and he sees a man who's struggling. Um, uh, the man had lost both of his legs and he was using some modified crutches to get around on the beach and somehow he had made his way to the water and now was trying to come back. And in the moment that Irwin looked at him, uh, the man uh, stumbled and fell hard into the sand. And he watched him for a moment as he struggled to get back up and fell again. And there are moments in life, if you're going down uh, the path of life, where you get struck. And Irwin has this moment and he says, I can either uh, keep going or I can turn and I can help the man. I need to make a choice right now. I can turn right to him or I can turn left and go on my way. And he says he turned left. He says, I looked at him and I knew seeing him and engaging would mean I'd have to, I'd have to do something about it. And I, I had all kinds of stuff going on with the conference and I just wanted this time with my boy on the beach. And I, I just wanted my own time. And so he turned left. And he kept going. And he actually says he, he put his hand on his son's shoulder and steered him left as they walked away from the man. And a little while later, he gets a tug from his son, who's 10, and says, Dad, i got to go help that man. And his son took off, ran toward the man, started to help him up, but at 10 years old was not able to didn't have the strength to help him. Uh, There was a group of college-age students who were further up on the beach who hadn't noticed the man, seeing the struggle of the 10-year-old son. uh, This whole group of young people came and helped the man and met him. Do you know how Irwin felt in the moment? There was a mix of emotions because he had been passive. He had chosen left instead of right. He had chosen to go on with his own, and he felt this mix of shame. But as his son came back, his son said, Dad, I couldn't do it. And he's crying. And he said, Son, because you responded, that man was helped. Nobody was going to him until you did. You met a need. And he had this sense of this weird combination of shame that he hadn't done anything, and yet swelling pride in who his son was becoming, that his son had captured a moment that God had sent his way, even though he had missed his own. We're going to talk about this today and what it, what it looks like when God brings moments our way and the opportunity that we have to respond, to go right or to go left, to to respond to this moment that God is bringing our way or to just carry on and keep going the way life has been. 
We are wrapping up today our four-week series on mission. Three weeks ago, uh, we dove really deep into Acts 1-8 to say when Jesus is commissioning his disciples, when he is launching the church, this is what he tells them to do. He says, I'm, I'm not establishing my kingdom in an earthly sense right now as you would hope or as you would expect. I'm doing something that is far greater than that. He, he says, you're going to receive power. My spirit is going to come on you and is going to fill you and is going to go with you and is going to empower you toward this mission that you have. And I want you to be my witnesses. And we, we broke witnesses up to say a witness is somebody who sees what God is doing, encounters God, knows Jesus, not just head knowledge, but knows, like a person, a husband knows his wife. There's an intimate relationship that we would know Jesus and that we would tell about him, that we would serve and tell with our actions, and that we would share and tell with our words. We want to be a church that sees and serves and shares in this mission that Jesus has sent us on. We spent the next two weeks kind of diving into this very here and now practical um, in our face division that we have in our country and in our community about, uh, when it comes to the color of our skin and the divide that has happened. And I'll tell you, uh, with the election that has just passed, it is ever more present. The election has revealed what has been going on, that we are deeply divided by the color of our skin. And God didn't design it that way. God didn't design it that way. Jesus came to mend it, and he calls us to get involved in a ministry of reconciliation, that we are not allowed to be his church and to be passive when God created diversity and loves it and calls it beautiful, that we have to spend ourselves. Jesus says, I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And, it, and I want you to be faithful in this. Today we're going to talk about a moment uh, that looks kind of like that. Coming out of the Old Testament, if you know the story of Esther, we're going to, we're going to jump into her story this morning. The kind of the Old Testament trajectory is God had created a people, God had created a people and a nation to follow him, to have a relationship with him, and to be a blessing to the world that the whole world could know him through them. And they had followed him and not, and followed him and not, and repented, and then uh, turned around and found sin again. And over and over and over, and it happens until the country is uh, torn apart. And uh, they're exiled into another country. Uh, and after a while, the exiles were allowed to go back. But some stayed. Some of the exiles stayed in Persia and said, I'm going to be here. Enter Esther and Mordecai. Esther and Mordecai are of the same family. They're cousins. Mordecai, though, is kind of like her adoptive father. He's taken her in, and he has cared for her. And they are exiles who have stayed in Persia and are living in a foreign land, as strangers there. 
And uh, the king, depending on your translation, is either King Xerxes or King Ahasuerus. Uh, Xerxes is his, I think, Greek name, and Ahasuerus is his Hebrew. Uh, they, they go by different names, but they're the same man. Okay? So he's, he's a pretty despicable human being. Ahasuerus uh, has a bunch of his friends over one night, and he calls his queen to come and perform for all of them. He says, I want you to dance. And this is not like do the jitterbug. This is, um, I, I want you stripped of your dignity in front of my friends. I have this kind of power and this kind of authority. And you are my queen. But this is not like king and queen in the fairy tales. This is, you are my property. I want you to come and I want you to dance. And Vashti, the queen, says, no, I'm not going to do that. And so the king just discards her and says, you're out. If you won't perform, you're gone. And now the king has a hole. Poor king. And he says, I need a queen. So let's have a beauty pageant. Let's call all the young, beautiful girls in the country. Um, and it's not, it's not a sign-up-if-you're-interested kind of thing. You're beautiful, you're selected kind of thing. And so Esther is beautiful by outward appearance. And she's uh, selected into this beauty pageant. They spend a year primping her. They spend a year with all the girls, teaching them how to be externally beautiful, teaching them how to present themselves to the king, how to really degrade themselves for his benefit. And at the end of the 12 months, she goes before the king, and he selects her. Like, great prize. He selects her, and she becomes queen. She's a Jew. But secretly. Doesn't tell anybody about it. And some, to, from Mordecai, from her cousins, her adoptive father's perspective, saying, like, you should keep this part of you quiet as you, uh, as you navigate this. I want you to be quiet. There's other characters in the story. There's a man named Haman who is rich, who gets um, all kinds of promotions up in the, on the king's team. He rises to the highest rank uh, in the king's world. And as he's walking through, people bow down to him, except for Mordecai. And he has so much... Um, pride, that that just enrages him, that someone would dare not bow to him. And he has problems with Mordecai and wants Mordecai wiped out because he can spend his power that way. And not just Mordecai, he knows Mordecai's a Jew, and he goes nuts and he starts burning and saying, I don't want to just eliminate Mordecai from the face of the earth. I want to eliminate his entire people. I want to eradicate the Jews. Because he didn't bow. They're gone. And so Haman goes to the king, and he says, king, and he schmoozes him. He says, this is what I would like to do. Let's plan this big event. It'll be great. And uh, we'll party, and we'll wipe out the Jews. And by the way, I'll 
I will donate 10,000 talents to the royal treasury. I skip by this. I had 10,000 talents. I don't know what that means. The entire Persian Empire was worth about 15,000 talents annually. So when he says, I'll donate 10,000 talents, he's not saying, I'll give you a tip. Here's 20 bucks. He's saying, I will help this nation financially. You, you will benefit richly if you just let me dismiss, uh, disregard, and annihilate this people group. That's a good deal for you, right? And the king says, that sounds like a good deal. I like that. Let's go for it. So the word is sent out. There's a date uh, in the future when this is coming, and Mordecai hears about it, and he goes into mourning. He goes into mourning, and Esther is kind of uh, secluded off. She's entered the harem. She's now property of the king, even though she's queen. Again, this isn't fairy tale world for her. He calls her when he wants her. He uses her as he wants to. And then he tells her to go away and don't come back until I call for you again. And if you would dare come into my presence without me calling you, you know what happened to Vashti. You know what I did with her and what I will do with anyone who dares enter my presence without being invited. This is where we pick up this morning. There's an order to annihilate an entire people group. Mordecai knows about it. Esther doesn't. And God is telling us this story. So if you have a Bible and you want to open up to Esther, it's on page 817 in some Bible somewhere. Um, Esther 4 is where we're going to pick up. Let's pray before we read. Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful that you are not a God who wants to remain a mystery, but wants to be known. We pray that you would open our eyes this morning to this story and this moment, that you'd help us to understand that moment so that we could apply it even to ours today and ours to come. Help us to see you. Thank you for your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Esther 4 reads, When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young woman and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn 
what this was and why it was. She doesn't know yet what's going on. She knows that Mordecai is in mourning. So she sends servants to say, what is going on? Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king and beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days and they told Mordecai what Esther had said. When Mordecai told them, then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether, whether you have not come into the kingdom for such a time is this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. And then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away, and did everything as Esther had ordered him. In some ways, though it's not a fairy tale, you could say that Esther was going down the course of life. This was the deck that had been handed her. This was the life that had been given her. And then this happens. Something happens. And Mordecai is uh, weeping and mourning, and Esther goes out to find what has happened? And Mordecai says, you, you are in position to do something about this. And today I want to talk about what it looks like to, to find yourself in a moment and not just go on by, not just miss out on what God may be calling you to do. This moment here, has been called by many a kairos. This is not just a passing moment, but a kairos moment. It's a moment that is full of opportunity. The, the word actually has meaning to the supreme moment. It's kind of the idea of like any passing moment is the size of a little atom, but the right one can be atomic, right? Something that seems so small could actually be uh, incredible. So this is, this is Esther's response. We're going to talk through this today. In four parts. The first part that Esther walks through is to see the need. 
Esther is secluded off in the, um, in the palace with all of the king's people, and she doesn't know what's going on. And it takes, it takes Mordecai's grieving, and it takes her sending servants to say, what is going on? And then this exchange happens, and he says, all, all of our people are set for destruction. There is a great need that you become aware of and you need to do something about. Esther sees the need and then almost immediately she counts the cost. Esther recognizes that this is not just something that she can do and say, oh, good, I've got some spare change. I can help out with this. I can just go to the king. We're in love, you know, and he'll listen to me and I can... I can make this request. He, he didn't really know what was going on. He said those things, and it was just, I, I can go fix this, no problem. Okay? She sees the need. She counts the cost. She says, if I do this, what is the likely outcome? Death. If I engage, it will cost me. It will likely cost me my life. Sometimes we read Esther and it's like there's this little chicken in the story. And then she grows up. This isn't really like that. Esther says, you don't know what you're asking me to do. You don't, this will cost me my life. And it probably won't even work. And Mordecai says, God is bigger than that. I want you to see what is going on. You count the cost. And the third is be encouraged. Now we have this we have this kind of fluffy idea of encouragement. What we tend to think of encouragement as is affirmation. You did good or I believe in you. You can do it. Encouragement in its core is an infusement of courage. Is to be encouraged, not to feel good, not to think, oh, happy thoughts, this is going to turn out great, is to be able to say, this may not turn out great, this may cost me, and I will still face into it. Bravery is not the absence of fear, it's saying, I won't let fear hold me back. I will go into this regardless of my fear. I will not let fear, like Beth said this morning, I will not give way to the rule of fear. I will have courage and I will move, which then leads into the fourth is act. You see the need and you feel the need. Your heart starts beating a little bit. And then you recognize, oh, that isn't free. I can't just feel my way out of this situation. I can't just feel a response and then all is good. It will cost me. And so I need courage. I need courage to do it. So Esther's form of courage comes in Mordecai's don't pretend that you'll be okay. Don't think for a moment that you can hide in the palace that all this stuff will happen to everybody else and you'll be safe. This doesn't sound like encouragement as we understand it, but this is exactly what it is. He's saying, 
You need to have the courage because this will impact you one way or the other. And then her courage expands when she says, okay, okay, I need you. I need you to gather everybody together. I need you to fast. And though the word isn't said pray, it is assumed in uh, the activity of fasting. I need you to pray for me. I need you to be with me. I need accountability from you. I'm telling you my plans. And now I, I, I can't do this alone. I need you to go with me so that I walk in courage. And then she walks it out. She says, I'll go. It will likely cost me everything, but I will go to the king. And if I perish, I perish. She came to a point in her life when she saw and she counted and she had courage. And she said, if I perish, I perish. This is bigger than me. Martin Luther King Jr. showed up in town at 26 years of age in Montgomery, Alabama, uh, at the beginning of the bus boycott, when there was all kinds of uh, racial tension and discrimination uh, and separateness, and uh, black people were forced to move to the back of the bus and uh, stripped of dignity. And at 26 years old, the new guy in town Martin Luther King is chosen as the one to lead the bus boycott. And he says, I don't know if I'm the guy to do that. I, I mean, I'm new, I'm young. And they said, that's exactly why we needed to do it. The police haven't got to you yet. <laughs> uh, we need you to lead. You're intelligent, you're bright, you can speak on our behalf. He sees a need, and they ask him to do something about it and he counts the cost. Things got intense for King. Bombs started getting thrown in his window at home. There's all kinds of conversation and screaming and uh, conflict going on, and he counts the cost and he knows what's happening, but he finds the courage to act, and he's asked one time in an interview on his couch, he's asked, asked if he's afraid. And he says, I've come to see that this cause is bigger than my life. That my own individual life is not bigger than what is going on here. And that, that grew in him a courage to act. Jesus did this. At the point of our deepest need... Jesus sees us. He does it today. He sees us loaded down by sin of our own doing, loaded down by shame of our own doing, and some that has been pushed down on us. Jesus, as he started his ministry, says, I see, I see the blind. I see the oppressed. I see the captive. I see you. I see the poor. I see the need, and I have come for that. I have come for freedom and for health, for liberty. I've come to give you life to the full. Did Jesus count the cost? Oh, my. 
Jesus sees the need, is moved by the need, counts the cost, and says, if I perish, I perish. Only there's no if. I will perish doing this for the need, doing this for you. So this is something that Jesus did. It's something that he still is doing today. It's something that he's still offering today. If you are in your point of deepest need, burdened by sin, running away from God, Jesus says, I see you. If you are living your life broken, Jesus says, I see you. If you're living oppressed, Jesus says, I see you. And I came for liberty. I came for you. Jesus regularly found encouragement by spending time with the Father. By saying, I don't, I don't do anything except what the Father tells me to do. He found his encouragement in community. He found his encouragement in relationship with the Father and through the Spirit, being led by the Spirit into all kinds of ministry. Jesus was attentive. His community gave him courage. And he acted. If you're here this morning and you're living a life separate from God, you can recognize what Jesus did for you. He came to give you life where maybe only death is living right now. And you can respond to that. Esther seizes her moment. She goes to the king. He raises his scepter, which means she's allowed to live. And he has a conversation with her, and she starts, to, she starts to be really shrewd and just kind of butters up the king, plays to his ego, works the system. And through a chain of events, uh, a number of meetings, Esther actually gets the king to, to, to see this error, to see how crooked Haman is. And the tables are turned. The Jews are saved. Haman... Um, is hanged, kind of impaled on a pole. Um, and, and it revolves around Esther's response and Esther's courage. Esther seizes this Kairos moment. Martin Luther King seized moments. Jesus seized the moment, the supreme moment. And now he calls us to. There will be times in our life when we are just minding our own business and God shows us a need. It may come directly from heaven with trumpets and horns and this uh, deeply spiritual moment. It may come through the newspaper. It may come through uh, people talking to you. When God opens our eyes to see a need, we have an opportunity to just keep going or to process this moment. Erwin McManus said he did all of this processing in a few seconds, and he chose to keep going. It's not that he didn't think about it. It's that he thought about it and chose others, chose to not respond. And we can choose. We can choose to keep going. But if we would call ourselves followers of Jesus... That's not a choice for us. Like We follow Jesus in seeing the need, in uh, counting the cost, in finding our courage, and then in acting. What does that look like? 
It's why we're building a partnership at Wright Middle School. It's why we want to grow in relationship, not so that we can save kids, but so that we can engage in our world, so that we can be close enough to see what's going on, so that we could see needs. There's need there for after-school tutors, for lunchtime help uh, on the playground, for all kinds of stuff. If you would, if you would stand up and say, you can uh, do a background check on me. I'd love to get in as a volunteer. I can point you in that direction. I would love for our church to, to come in and add a human component to that partnership. Last week, I met with our neighborhood uh, alder person, Ms. Sherry Carter, super dignified leader here, because I just wanted to get to know the neighborhood a little bit. Uh, and she's going to start introducing me. We're so very close to having a lease signed that we get to actually like uh, say that we're here and we're, we're, and we're here for a while. I would love to be able to declare that this morning, but we are so very close. And when we do, I think our mission is to say, how can we be good neighbors here? What is going on in our community here? And how would God have us respond to it? And that was my, my meeting with Ms. Carter. I say, we want, we want to be a blessing. And she was pretty excited about it. The river and slave-free Madison are all, all ways that we can take these moments and respond and do something. There is, there is the fact, the reality that we live in a racialized uh, society. Dr. Perry was here uh, last week, and you can sense in his words and in his person um, a dignity and a pain, can't you? At calling things what they are and seeing the need to respond, but not just being able to do it, but needing the church to run, to do that. Our election reveals we have work to do. And whether you voted for Trump, or you voted for Clinton, or you voted for somebody else, the call is to love. We need repentance on our part because we have not done well with loving. And it isn't just emotions, but in actions. We are called to be a ministry of reconciliation, to draw people together. And if we're like this, maybe we have some work to do before we can... Maybe, maybe our action is to serve. Maybe our action is to stand up. Like what Esther said, God put me in a position where I can do something. And then I can turn around because it'll cost me. Or I can step into it. I'm super excited. When Jesus said, be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Um, part of the ends of the earth right now for us at Damascus Road is Senegal. Uh, I, I talked about a couple past trips that I've been on. Um, in Senegal, and um, when I talked about visiting the slave museum, and we're going to send a team in February. 
uh, over the ocean to land in Dakar, the capital of Senegal, and uh, to go from uh, the capital out into the bush, into a village called Goodell, and spend a week, 10 days, looking at whether this Adopt-A-Village program might be something that fits with Damascus Road. We're going as a vision trip to say what could be. We want to be attentive. We want to see what God is doing. And the only way we can see is if we have our eyes open and we go looking. And if it doesn't turn out, if it's not a good fit, then we can say, we're looking. And if it is a good fit, then it's a way that we can engage to the end of the earth. So, uh, it's going to be a small, a small group of us who are going, but if this starts to fit, this will be something that I would love to spread uh, in our church. I'm very, very, very excited about that. That's us seeing needs and getting to a place where we count the cost and find the courage to act. So the questions that I have for you to wrap up, what needs do you see? It's not really complicated. What needs do you see? Where is God putting you in position to do something about it? If he has made you aware of something, that is the beginning. What needs do you see? If you don't see needs, ask the question, am I looking? God, will you show me needs? Maybe you need to go on a need hunt and open your eyes because they're all over the place. Open your eyes. What needs do you see? What will it cost you? There are some needs that won't cost you much of anything. There are some needs that may cost you everything. And there's everywhere in between. What will it cost you? Are you willing? Where do you need courage infused? Is seeing a need and counting the cost something that strikes up stress and anxiety and fear in you that would hold you back? And is that a place where you'd say, God, I need courage. I don't want to turn my back on this. I don't want to close my eyes to this. I need courage. I need bravery. I have fear, and I can't let fear win. Where do you need that? Maybe it's in talking to people and through it. Not so they can say, it'll be okay. I believe in you but to say, if God is calling you to do it, do it. To whom do you need to impart courage? Who do you see in a moment who needs the courage to act? Because not all moments are mine. Not all moments are yours individually. There are, God hits us with moments. And if God puts us in position... Like, there are times when you need to give me courage. There are not times when I need to give you courage. So who do you need to give courage to? Who do you see at a crossroads that needs that? Sometimes it's like Mordecai. Don't pretend that you're going to be okay if you don't act on this. You need to do this. Maybe that's what giving courage looks like. And I believe in you. What will your action look like? We started this series out by talking about the frustration of sitting behind somebody at a green light who is not going. 
They have a green light and they're failing to go. Now, where's our green light? Where's the green light that we've been given that says, it's okay to go now. You can do this. On the beach, one person missed his moment, and another seized his. Esther seized hers. Martin Luther King Jr. seized his. Jesus did as well. Let's close with this prayer. May we follow in the footsteps of Esther and in Martin Luther King Jr. and in Jesus himself as we see the needs around us, as we count the cost, as we find our courage and act. Amen. We're going to move into a time of communion and worship. It's a beautiful time to be able to reflect on what Jesus did. You can use this in what Jesus did for us in not letting the cost deter him from giving everything so that we could have life. You take the, take the little cracker and reflect on the great sacrifice that he made on our behalf, his body that was ripped open and broken for us. And you take the cup that that symbolizes this new life, this new covenant, this new promise that he made, that he extends to us. Say, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for acting. Would you well up in me that I could follow in your footsteps? Let's engage in worship. <laughs>